Please turn with me to Psalm 119, verses 1 through 16. You can see it in your bulletins, or you can find it in context in the Bible in your row on page 480. Today we are looking at the longest chapter in the Bible. Don't worry, just the first 16 verses, I promise. Um, the Psalms were the, ancient, the hymn book of ancient Israel, so you should think of what we're about to read together as more truly a song than just a written word alone. And it's important to understand the original intent of the author that this was meant to be sung, uh, because music moves us, it touches us, our whole person, heart, body, soul. This is actually why we worship through singing on a Sunday morning, uh, and it grows beautiful when many voices come together. So think of this psalm that I'll read here shortly as an extension of that worship, uh, something that's meant to be a great song sung by many, many voices. Um, One more thing to know about the psalms. They come from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So we're going to look at them and consider, consider this psalm in three rounds, if you will. So the first round will be the original context, the Israelite who wrote this, the Israelites who sung it back in ancient Israel. And then in the second round, we'll consider how would Jesus, as a Jew himself, have engaged with these words when he sang them when he was on earth? And then finally, we'll come to the round where we, on the far side of Jesus, look at this psalm in the light of his life, his death, and his resurrection. What else should we know about this particular psalm? Only this is a beautiful work of art. And it teaches us, it shows us a picture of God's relationship with and for us, what he has in mind for us, and how he has made it possible for us, imperfect people, to have a relationship with him, the perfect one. Hear now Psalm 119, verses 1 through 16, which is God's word to you, proof of his love for you, and his desire to know you. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Please pray with me. Now, Lord... Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow it thirty, sixty, and hundredfold. Amen. Are you trying to trick me? Where's the sports? Is this a kissing book? When does it get good? This comes from the beginning of the movie The Princess Bride, if you're familiar with it. A boy is homesick from school. His grandfather comes to read him a book. He promises there'll be action, there'll be sports, interesting things. 
But when the book begins with a romance between Wesley and Princess Buttercup, the grandson grows concerned and then interrupts and says, wait, 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 what's going on here? Because he wants to know, is this a kissing book? Have you tricked me here? I wonder if you felt something similar when I finished reading that bit of Psalm 119. Let me run through a few stereotypes of this psalm for you. It's long. It's repetitive. It's obsessed with God's law, his word, his precepts. It's boring. Uh, Maybe it makes me feel guilty. I thought you said this was a picture of God's love for us, his plan to bring us into relationship with him. Are you trying to trick me? Where's the sports, right? Or maybe in this context, where's the relationship? Where's the beautiful plan? This isn't a kissing book, per se, but perhaps you're wondering, is this a read-your-Bible-and-do-better book? And like the grandson, maybe you're wondering, come on, Alden, when does it get good? Well, to quote Grandpa, keep your shirt on and let me finish. (laughs) You see, this psalm is full of relationship and beauty, and it responds to something that we all experience, fear. Specifically, it responds to our terror that we will be put to shame, exposed before those we love and respect, and that they will forsake us, they'll abandon us and run away. Relationships are at the core of who we are. God has made us that way. He's made us for relationship with each other and with him. And so all of us fear losing relationships, even as we long for them. We think to ourselves, if the people I love, the people I respect, the people I care about, if they knew what I'm really like, They would run the other direction. They would never speak to me again. Or maybe we think, well, I'm not the problem here. Everyone else is. And we either alternate between not letting anybody into our heart whatsoever or leaving a wake of broken relationships behind us. Either of these extremes is a cry for one relationship, a relationship where we will not only be accepted but loved, and a relationship where we will never, ever be put to shame or forsaken. Do you feel that longing within you for a relationship like that, where you would never have to fear those things? Well, I'm afraid the next bit is the bad news this morning, because you see we have the opportunity for a relationship just like that with the one good and perfect God. But we betrayed him, and we have earned shame, and we deserve to be forsaken because of that. The psalmist in 119 knows this fear. If you look at verse 6, you'll see that his desire is not to be put to shame. He's afraid of that. And that he cries out in verse 8, pleading with God not to utterly forsake him. From the beginning, God has been about relationship with us. Now, my mother taught me never to reveal the end of a story to somebody before they get to see it for themselves. But, spoiler alert, that's what the whole Bible and this passage is about today. God working to restore our broken relationship with him. It's broken because, like I said, God is good and he's perfect. And we are the kind of people who would make others run if they saw our inner thoughts. And consider this. God does see our inner thoughts. I mean, that's why Jesus could say, as we read in our time of confession earlier today, what he did about murder. Because you see, it's not enough to not commit murder. Our thoughts condemn us when in our minds and in our hearts we speak evil of others. The point is, no one sitting in this room right now is perfect. Not one of us. And when we each look deeply within ourselves, we fear that those we love would abandon us. And what we're expressing in that, when we're afraid of losing relationship from the humans around us, whether we know it or not, what we're expressing is a fear that God will abandon us. 
And that's actually a proper fear, because God is the one who has every right to do so. But here's the good news. Because we all deserve to be forsaken, we must rely on God's word to save us, and his word does save us. His word saves us by showing us truth, it saves us by showing, us, by showing up, and it saves us by showing love. So his word shows truth, it shows up, and it shows love. First, God's word shows truth. Remember, we read this psalm in three rounds. First round, Israelite context. How would this have been written and read and sung for the original Israelites? Well, when we look at it on that level, we see the truth, and the truth is we were made for relationship with God. Let's look at how Psalm 119 shows us this. Remember when I told you the stereotypes of this psalm? One of them was that Psalm 119 is obsessed with God's law or his word or his precepts. Um, Quick note on that. When we talk about God's law here, think of that as referring not just to some legal code, but kind of broadly to the whole Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture. So that's what we're thinking of when we hear that word. Okay, so the Israelite who wrote this, really, really obsessed with God's law. If you don't believe me, we didn't get there in the passage we read, but if you were to peek ahead in your Bible to verse 20, you would see this line. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules, God. That sounds pretty obsessed to me. And that one track repetition that we see throughout this very, very long psalm tends to make us feel one of two things. Either we feel guilty, well, I'm not like that, or we roll our eyes at this better-than-thou language and think, who is actually like that? I mean, who was the guy who wrote this? You'd think that based on this, the most repeated word in this very, very long psalm would be law, or one of those synonyms. I'm indebted to David Pallison for this observation, but there's actually a set of words that the original Israelite author uses so often that they run laps around any reference to God's law in this passage. And what are those words? They're the first and second person personal pronouns. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't glaze over on me. That just means it's the I, me, my words and the you, your words. Okay, so what? Why does that matter? Well, instead of some guy just bragging about his Bible study skills, what we actually have here is a passionate love letter between the Israelite who wrote this and between his God. It doesn't get much more relational than that. Okay, Psalm 119 shows truth that we were made for a relationship with God. It's personal. Well, it still seems like it's just obsessed with God's word, though. Maybe it's personal, but it's about his word. What's the deal with that? It's not about God himself. It's a good question, and it relates deeply to the context that we're in with the Jewish people. Because you see, back then, God's word and his person, well, this is always true. It's still true now. But as they would have written this and seen this, God's word and his person were two parts of the same thing. He revealed himself to his people in his word. He showed his character. If you wanted to know God, You needed to know his word. And this is reflected all throughout the Old Testament where God commands his people, where he says, store up my word in your heart. We see this in our own passage, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So this was actually how God, who we've been separated from, lived with his people because they would store his word in their heart, his character, his person, that they come to see through his word. And when they stored it there, They would have him living with them. But this isn't just simple memorization. 
This means meditating on God's word to the point where we come to know him, know who he is, what he loves, what he cares about, what matters to him. And that was how God the person would dwell in his people. So we're made for relationship with God, and his word is the vehicle that carries that relationship forward. Let's think about the law again for one more second and think about how this is a love letter written toward God, but how does it show his relationship toward us through these words? And let's think about the synonyms of the word law that we see throughout. So look at verse 1 with me. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Well, law, that means authority. It means he's watching out for us, because good laws are intended to protect people. Verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Well, testimonies refer to proof, proof that he has saved his people in the past, and that he's going to do it again. Verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Statutes remind us that he is eternal and that he is always with us. Verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Righteous rules mean he is good. He cares about justice. You get the idea. I'm not going to go through all of the verses. But each of these words captures a different aspect of who God is. It's not just memorizing it. It's understanding what the words mean and storing that in your heart, understanding God's person so that he can live within us. Let me give you an example of a man who did this, who stored God's word, specifically Psalm 119, actually, in his heart and how it changed who he was and how he did things. You may or may not have heard of William Wilberforce, who was born in the 1700s, Uh, in England. He became a parliamentarian, and he dedicated his entire life to ending slavery in England. In 1807, he helped abolish the slave trade there, and the year he died in 1833, slavery was entirely outlawed in all of the United Kingdom. Between those two dates, in 1819, he wrote this in his journal about the walk from his house, a place called Hyde Park Corner, to the Parliament House. He said, today, walked from Hyde Park Corner, repeating the 119th Psalm in great comfort. Did you catch that? The longest verse, the longest book in the Bible, or longest chapter here, he has it memorized, and he's reciting it to himself as he's walking from his house to his job. What a commute, right? But you see, in Wilberforce's day, there were a lot of people who used the Bible, used Scripture, to justify their pro-slavery stance aggressively. So it's not enough to just memorize But what set Wilberforce apart was that he learned God's character as he meditated, as he recited Psalm 119 to himself, all about God's law, his justice. He learned that God is somebody who cares about the oppressed. God is somebody who loves, who upholds justice. You cannot read that. You cannot understand God's character and use these words to support something like slavery. And so he understood God's word. He stored it in his heart, and he used it to spur him on to end a great evil in his day. Friends, what word, whose word, do you have stored in your heart? All of us have something in there. Does what you have stored in your heart, the word there, does it move you toward justice and love or self-interest? Does it satisfy you or does it leave you longing for something better? Again, this is not about memorization. It's not enough to do that because you could put the entire Bible word for word in your heart and miss the point. I mean, that's the whole point of what we read during the time of confession, that you can memorize the command, do not murder, but still treat people evilly in your heart. 
If you're a Christian and you've ever thought to yourself, if I just knew more, if I just had more of the Bible memorized, then I would be a better person. Then I would, you know, know more things and just be good. That is not inherently true. I would not discourage you from reading your Bible and memorizing it, but memorizing it is not a one-to-one thing. And I would caution you, do not be tricked by anybody who would try to shackle you with guilt or shame saying, do better, try harder, no more Bible. And if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to remember that not everybody who tacks a Bible verse onto something represents God and his character. You see, God's word shows us truth, the truth that we are made for a relationship with him, a person, not just a set of words. But it also shows us the truth that that relationship is broken. In verse 1, we see the expectation is that we be blameless. In case you missed that, verse 3 slams it home with a do no wrong. Well, that rules all of us out. So our relationship is broken. We are separated from God. We've all missed the mark. And we can't fix it on our own. Remember what we read during the assurance of forgiveness after that passage of confession. I'll read it again for you, but it's in your bulletins. This is verse 176 from the same psalm. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. We are on our own if he does not seek us out. But rather than leave us there, God carried out a plan to bring us to himself when his word showed up. All right, we're on round two of reading this psalm. Remember, this is Jesus. How would Jesus have engaged with these words? How would he have sung them and considered them in his life? In the Israelite context, we considered the truth. God shows us truth. We're made for relationship. Now we see that God's word literally shows up and dwells on earth among us with Jesus, who engaged scripture, including Psalm 119, throughout his life. But what do I mean that the word shows up in Jesus? Whether or not you're particularly familiar with the Bible, I suspect that most people in this room could probably recite the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's no accident that the Gospel of John, an account of Jesus' life, begins with a very parallel phrase. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. You see, John wants to be sure that we know that Jesus is the Word, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus was there at creation when all of these things happened. John goes on a couple of verses later to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, the Son of God was born a man, and he went and lived among us. The Word became flesh. Now, instead of it just being something that we store in our hearts, it took on a literal physical heart and lived among us. Um, And as Jesus lived, he showed us how to live Psalm 119. He did this by loving his Father's Word, by showing us what it looks like in the face of great trial to live it out. Uh, Let me show you just briefly, looking back at these verses again, how Jesus, we can measure any verse against his life and see that he is the only one who measures up to it in all of Scripture. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. He's the only one who truly was blameless. Verse 2, Jesus kept God's word perfectly, sought him with his his whole heart. He was the first person in history to do it. Verse 6, where we see, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Jesus had no reason to fear shame. He was the only one who kept all the commandments, even in his heart, where none of us do. That's where we all fall short. Verse 8, by keeping God's word, 
Jesus was the only one who could be confident that God would never forsake him. In summary, verse 11, Jesus stored up all of God's word in his heart, and he never sinned against him. One of the first places that we see Jesus' sinlessness and love of God's word sort of lived out to see is in his temptation when Satan comes and tempts him. He's just been baptized, he goes out into the wilderness, and for 40 days, he doesn't eat anything. Perhaps the understatement of that millennium is when Matthew says, after 40 days of not eating, Jesus was hungry. I suspect that there are some stomachs in this room that after a few hours between meals are already rumbling. Imagine what it would be like to go 40 days without food. And before you say, yeah, but that's Jesus, we need to think about something that people in churches like this often lose sight of. Jesus was God, and Jesus was man. He was fully human. So after 40 days without food, he felt exactly like you and I would feel without food. He was hungry, and then some. It should be no surprise, then, that the temptation that Satan throws at him is food-related. That would have knocked me over right there. Food is very important to me. I would have been done at that time. Um, But look at what Satan says. He says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. This is not actually about bread. It's about whose authority, whose power, is Jesus going to follow? His own or God the Father's? And Jesus responds with the word that he has stored up in his heart from the book of Deuteronomy. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. See, Jesus is showing us what it looks like to live out Psalm 119, to love, to obey, to store up God's word in our heart. And he's not cherry-picking here. If you go back to Deuteronomy, the verse that he quotes, this is a verse about how the Israelites fell short, craving bread when they were in the wilderness, demanding it from God, even when he rained it from heaven on them in the form of manna. You see, Jesus succeeds where we fail. Even in his weakness, he loves God's word, he stores it in his heart, and he does not sin against him. Do you still have that nagging feeling? Yeah, but come on, Alden, he's Jesus. Fair enough. Let's return to our friend William Wilberforce. Because you see, I gave you the highlights of his career earlier. He dedicated his life to ending slavery, a wonderful thing and something he was successful in. What I didn't tell you is that in 1788, 20 years before he helped abolish the slave trade, he began using opioids to treat his illness and pain he was experiencing. From that point onward, for the remaining 45 years of his life, he struggled daily with that addiction, even on the day that he wrote that journal entry about Psalm 119 being a great comfort to him. Each day was a tension between awful pain and reliance on a substance that threatened to control him. You see, both William Wilberforce and Jesus loved God's word, and they stored it in their hearts. But Wilberforce was not sinless. There were many days where he chose the wrong authority, despite whatever good things that he did. But let me take you to the middle of Psalm 119, this long passage that he recited and said was a great comfort to himself. This is starting in verse 67. It says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Then, verse 71, it says, It is good for me that I was afflicted 
that I might learn your statutes. If any of you here today have struggled with the affliction of addiction, you know how hard it would be to recite those words out loud in the midst of your struggle. To say, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. In fact, if any of you have faced any kind of suffering, and who in this room has not faced suffering, you know how hard it is to say these words sincerely. But friends, that's what faith is. It's believing that in the face of whatever affliction you're facing that feels oppressive and overwhelming and like it will crush you, that God is good and that he will do good, even if you don't or can't see it in the moment. And nobody faced more excruciating or unjust affliction than Jesus. Do you know how we know that Jesus had the Psalms in particular stored in his heart? Because as he was dying on the cross, after he had been betrayed by one of his closest friends, after he had been tortured by ruthless captors, after he had been humiliated in front of the people who should have been his own, he quoted from Psalm 22, verse 1. Perhaps you're familiar with this line, but may not have realized it came from a psalm. On the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here was the Son of God, the only perfect one, the one who Psalm 119 reminds us deserved no shame, should never have been forsaken. Here he was, crying out in his affliction from the Psalms. Jesus had all of God's word, including Psalm 119, including these verses about affliction, about God's goodness in the face of affliction, stored in his heart, and he cried out with it on the cross. What afflictions do you face? Where do you turn? What's your hope? Do you have God's word stored in your heart so that it comes to your lips, it comes to your mind, reminding you that in the face of the hardest things, he is good and he will do good? If the story ended there, uh, or, or do you too feel alone and forsaken, abandoned by God, abandoned by man? If the story ended there, it would be a depressing finish indeed. But I'm thankful it doesn't. God, the greatest author of all, does not leave us there. His story ends with glory. Come and see how his word shows love. Now we've reached that final round on which we read this psalm, where we think of it in light of Jesus' full story, not just as it was in the Israelite context, not just as it was when Jesus read it, but in the full understanding of what Jesus did. How do we come back to these words? First, let me say, you've likely heard the phrase, Jesus died for your sins. Unfortunately, in many people's hands, that phrase has become a weapon. If someone has used that as a weapon against you, I'm deeply sorry. It was never intended to be used that way. But even if it hasn't been used as a weapon against you, most of us are so familiar with it that we just sort of shrug. Okay, Jesus died for my sins. But this ought to be one of the most reassuring phrases ever spoken. Remember from verse onward, Psalm 119 reveals all of the ways that we fall short. There's a price to be paid because we fall short. When Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the only one who has the right to ask that question. But when he cries that out, when he is forsaken, he is forsaken so that you and I could be brought near. Look at verse 6. Jesus was put to shame so that we who fall short might never have to hide our face from the one who is good and perfect, who knows all, 
and who sees all. There's one more sticking point, though. How could God forsake Jesus? How could he allow Jesus to be put to shame? How could he allow this injustice to occur? And not only allow it, but in some way seem to participate with the judgment that falls on Jesus. If Jesus' body came down from the cross and stayed in the grave, I would have no answer for you. And frankly, I wouldn't be a Christian. But you see, his body did not stay in the grave. He is risen for your answer to how God could allow Jesus to be put to this shame. Let me read to you from the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This verse deserves a sermon of its own, and it's had many, but I'll try to just scrape the surface right now. Joy is what drove Jesus knowingly to the cross. Do you know what his joy was? Look around you. His joy was us. He went to the cross not just grudgingly, but joyfully to his death in order to save sinners like us, to restore our relationship with God. And God sent him to do it because the shame would not, the shame could not stick. Jesus scorned the shame of the cross, knowing that it would not have the last word, that glory awaited him, and that he had made a way for us who were separated to be part of God's family. So in light of Jesus, the whole psalm is unlocked. What was once, at the beginning, the standard that proved our guiltiness, in Jesus becomes the proof that we can never be taken away from our relationship with God. Because Jesus came and lived the literal God's word living among us, we no longer have to store his word, have him live figuratively with us by storing his word in our heart. His word literally lives inside of us by his spirit. And because Jesus lived perfectly where we did not, and he paid the price of our guiltiness, we all are free. Consider with me one last time the words that we read as an assurance of forgiveness earlier. Remember, this is from the same psalm, Psalm 119. We're starting here at the beginning that I've been preaching from. This is the very final verse of this psalm. It says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. We all go astray. None of us can save ourselves. But perhaps you've heard the parable of the lost sheep that Jesus said. This comes from the book of Luke, and I'll read it to you now. Uh, This is starting in chapter 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners, that is those who were, uh, you know, sinners viewed lowly, were all drawn near to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes, that would be the religious leaders of that day, grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he, Jesus, told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, 
there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. More joy in heaven for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. He scorned its shame and he moved toward glory. Can you doubt that we were Jesus's joy as he willingly went to the cross? Friends, you and I are that sheep. We are that lost sheep. And the God of the universe says he delights in bringing us home and bringing us into his family. If you are asking for help today, you are in line with this psalm. And Jesus is seeking you. Oh, may all our fears be answered and our hopes fulfilled in his word. We're about to do communion and sing two final songs to remind ourselves who God is, how he loves us, how he has made us for a relationship with him, just like Psalm 119 was a song sung to remind his people of those things. The song that we will sing during communion opens with a very unsettling line. It says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Emmanuel literally means God with us, and it's a name for Jesus. So there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Jesus' veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. A friend of mine who became a Christian later in life told me one time how deeply disturbed he was by that line. Frankly, I can understand where he's coming from. But you see, I can assure you, nobody is going to pour blood over you this morning. I promise it. What this line is actually getting at is the heart of our story this morning. There is no literal transfusion of blood. But God's word describes what amounts to a sin transfusion. More than, you know, the coronavirus or HIV or anything that attacks the body, all of us are sick with sin and we are eternally chronic. But for the joy set before him, Jesus took away our sin and transfused us with his righteousness. God's word shows us the truth that we were made for a relationship with him. The problem that we are sinful, that we fall short and the consequence that we deserve to be utterly forsaken and ashamed. His word shows up in the person of Jesus to do what we never could, living perfectly, dying in our place. And his word shows love when he washes us clean of our disease and makes us forever pure so that his spirit can live within us. We can't save ourselves, but I hope that we can all say with the psalmist, I have gone astray like a lost sheep Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. If you've truly stored his word in your heart, then you know he has promised to seek you, and he will. And the next time that you encounter Psalm 119, or any passage of scripture for that matter, I hope that you have the experience of the grandson at the end of the princess bride. The grandfather suddenly stops reading, and the grandson beside himself says, Grandpa, why did you stop? Grandfather says, well, it's more kissing. You don't want to hear that. And the grandson says, well, I don't mind the kissing so much anymore. And suddenly, as his grandfather is leaving, the grandson, who at the beginning rolled his eyes at a love that he thought was ridiculous, says this to his grandfather. Grandpa, maybe you could read it to me again tomorrow. May all of us have that heart for God's word. Let's pray. O oh, Father, Son, and Spirit, you are perfect and you have revealed your perfect plan to us in your word. May we each learn to love your word more, that we may stop trying to save ourselves 
and find the peace and joy of relationship with you. Amen.